Returning to uh, the first chapter of Luke, a little correction here. I said Derek Gonzalez, who played volleyball for me in 1994. It should be Derek Garcia. Who knows, maybe Derek Gonzalez magically became a member somewhere, wherever he happens to be. Anyway. We're looking at Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Hear now the word of God. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me. In the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would come to understand this rich and deep message found in the story of the parents of John the Baptist, that you, Father, according to your own divine providence and wisdom, would start this account through Luke with and John the Baptist and his parents, rather than moving right to Christ, who is the central figure of all Scripture. Help us to understand why that is, what we should learn from this about who you are, what we should learn in terms of your call, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, apparently I'm uh, tied to an algorithm that leads my computer somehow to conclude that I have an interest in certain types of conversations. One conversation surfaced this week that made me think of this interaction with Zacharias and the angel Gabriel. What popped up on my computer was a brief clip of this comedian, Ricky Gervais. He is a very funny guy. He is a very intelligent person. I mean, his uh, rant at the Golden Globes a couple years ago was very amusing, was very amusing to watch. He's also a very outspoken atheist. But he serves, I think, as as an example, as I've as I've read many times from many able writers, and that is people can be very smart in some things, but not very smart in other things. You know, I feel like, I, I, feel like I don't think I'm a genius, but I feel like I know I'm pretty good at some things. But let me just tell you right now, you don't want me to change the brakes on your car. And it would be highly irresponsible of me to start changing brakes on people's cars and take it upon myself. Well, that's Pastor Paul. He's trustworthy. <laughs> Will be the last words you ever speak, right? 
In an attempt to legitimize his atheism, Gervais sought to make atheism sound so obvious, the way he expressed it, that there shouldn't even be a word for it, is the way he said. There shouldn't even be a word for atheism. He posited that the word atheism should not exist, not because atheism isn't legitimate, because it is so incontrovertibly true. You shouldn't need to feel the need to have a term for it at all because it's so obvious. There's not a word, he says, for for not believing in fairies. So why should there be a word for not believing in God? Now, I have to say, he may be an able comedian, but he's not an able logician, he's not an able philosopher, and he's certainly not an able theologian. Because not believing in something is highly significant. I would not want any of my children to marry someone who engaged in this type of rhetorical trickery. If a suitor came and wanted to marry one of my children and they said they didn't believe in justice... They didn't believe in honesty. They didn't believe in truth. They didn't believe in courage. I don't think anybody should be surprised that I would want my children and anybody else who I cared about to remain distant from such type of a person. And it would not help if they pled that they're only telling me what they don't believe, not what they do believe. One need merely observe the consequences of unbelief that turned the 20th century into the horrifying Mao, Lenin, Stalin, communistic bloodbath that is still staining the mops of the 21st century. Gervais sought to, once again, trumpet that atheism is not a system of thought. Atheism is not saying anything. It is, it is merely a word describing a privation an absence, something that is not there. That's all the word is doing. But I do pray that we're all wise enough to grasp how such a privation, such an absence, yanks the spine out of the body of humanity. Of the last century, it's been said, and I quote, communism at its heart is dependent upon Marxist-driven atheism. It was the surgical and intentional extraction of the acknowledgement of the triune God from the affairs of men that left politically amoral monsters in charge of the 20th century. It is not what these atheists believed that made them the horrifying nightmares that they were. It was what they refused to believe. All of this, I think, bitterly proves the quote attributed to Dostoevsky that if there is no God, anything is permissible. It's funny, I looked that up this week and I started studying it. And it's funny how many people are trying to write against it as if he didn't make any sense when he said that. And these are just well-written, shallow objections to the fact that there, if, if there is no God, all things are permissible. Now, I open with that little story because unbelief is at the heart of the encounter that we just read of between Zacharias and the angel 
Gabriel. Let me bring us up to speed in terms of where we are in this, in this gospel. Up to this point, Luke is recording that by the Spirit of God, he is giving an orderly account of the events of Christ. He's writing it down for us to understand what actually took place. And in the series that I'm doing now, we're going to start with Luke, which begins before the birth of Christ, even before the birth of John the Baptist. And when we're done, we're going to be at the end of Acts, which Luke also wrote with the Apostle Paul on trial and in house arrest. So it'll span the entire work of the accomplished work of redemption. So Luke doesn't start with Jesus. He doesn't even start with John the Baptist. He starts with the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias, and Elizabeth. We learned a little bit last week about them, that they were a righteous couple living in very dark times. During the days of Herod, the king of Judea, so, so the, the political and religious climate that they lived in makes our current political and religious climate pale in comparison to the darkness. Because it wasn't just that Herod was a cruel and vicious king, which he was, like serving the Roman Empire, which was a cruel and vicious empire. But the religious environment was just as bad. I mean, we read in the beginning of John, right, that Jesus came into his own. That would be the covenant people of God. He came into his church, and what did they do? They received him not. So the environment that this couple was living in, though they were righteous, was a very dark environment. They were living very much in a let God be true, though everyone a liar generation. That's from Romans 3. I wonder how well we would do with that. I mean, you can evaluate yourself. Would you be willing individually to go, let God be true and everyone a liar? If, if everybody in this church left, if everybody said, I don't believe that Bible, I don't believe that Jesus, I don't, that whole story is a big fairy tale myth, I'm out of here, and that everybody in the country said, we're not going to hire you if you believe that kind of stuff, would you as an individual person sit where you are and go, you know what, though he, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? The whole world, they're all fools. They're all liars. There's only one true, wise God. Would that be you? Don't answer out loud. It's just something to think about. What's going on here? Zacharias is in the process of performing his priestly duties of burning incense, something that would happen just once in his life, the burning of incense in the temple, which was kind of an act of, of prayer, So he goes in there to do his duty, and he has a frightening encounter. An angel appears. But this frightening encounter immediately transitions into the hearing of the best news that Zacharias has probably ever heard. You know, there's this this great don't be afraid moment. I got something to tell you. And it's the best thing you've ever heard. There were probably two types of prayers, at least he was thinking of. One would be the normal prayer, and that is that God would deliver his people through the promised Messiah. The other prayer probably had to do, and we don't know for sure, had to do with the fact that his wife was barren, and they never had a child, and they would have liked a child. 
both of those prayers get answered at once, even though Elizabeth was well advanced in years, we read in verse 7. You see, the angel, and literally the word is used, the angel evangelized. Glad tidings. Good, I've got good news for you. But this, this is where the problems begin. Up until now, it's kind of a nice story. Now we got a problem. This man, who is early in this very chapter, who's described as blameless and, and godly and a keeper of the commandments and, and righteous, this very man is going to find himself under discipline. He's going to be disciplined directly by God. Not the kind of church discipline we might have in our own church, but the kind of discipline where God steps in and goes, unacceptable. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Right? So it's like, what he's saying here is, just in case you don't the angel said, you got, you're going to have a child, even though you're past childbearing years. His response, how shall I know this, for I'm old, and my wife is well advanced in years. I don't want to sound irreverent, but when I'm reading this story, that doesn't sound like an entirely unreasonable response. I was recently at the grocery store, and I got carded. <laughs> it shouldn't be that funny. <laughs> Those of you who are listening on the radio, you can do the math. I think it warranted a little bit of confusion on my part. How can this be? <laughs> but the confusion or hesitancy on the part of Zechariah I think it seemed warranted, but not only as I'm reading it does it seem warranted, he seems to be in good company of people who had the same response, right? Abraham fell on his face and laughed at the prospect of having a child in his old age. That seems worse to me. Later later in this very chapter, Mary's going to say, when she's given the news, she's going to say, how can this be? We also have even spoken of Sarah and Gideon and others who are like going, wait a minute. How, how are you going to do this? How does this work? So, you know, because it's my job, I spent a lot of time reading what people thought in terms of why is Zacharias kind of get the short shrift on this. And there's a bunch of possible answers. One is that he should have known better. I mean, he was an older priest. He had probably read the story of Abraham and Sarah. He might have even preached on that, right? So he shouldn't have been shocked at the fact that this could happen. Maybe it was that. Maybe, maybe Mary is given a pass because she was probably a teen at the time, right? And he's older. Although, as we're going to see, Mary seemed to know a lot as a teen. Perhaps God as his prerogative allows, exercised mercy on Abraham and Mary and just exercised justice on Zacharias. God does that sometimes. I'm going to exercise mercy on you, but here I'm going to go ahead and be just. You see, as R.C. Sproul said, we get so used to God's mercy that his justice seems unjust. 
Or, as God's omniscience allows, the fact that he knows everything, that he knew the heart of Zacharias, it's speculated that he saw in Zacharias a deeper doubt than the others. Maybe. Maybe the words are very similar, but it's like, no, you, they were more like thrilled and excited, but you are more doubtful. I don't know the answer to that question, but we do know some things. And we, we know what God wants us to know in terms of the narrative. We know Gabriel's answer to Zacharias's doubt. Here's where he goes. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. You know, at first blush, it doesn't seem like much of an answer. How am I going to know? I'm old. How am I going to know this? I'm Gabriel. <laughs> Zacharias, I am old. Gabriel, I am Gabriel. <laughs> when we hear this term, are you familiar with the, the term self-evident? We usually think of what? Yeah, the Declaration of Independence. We'll put it up there for, you don't have to get up or salute or anything, but just for information. <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I always marvel at how the guys who actually wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution continually violated the separation of church and state. I guess they weren't that smart. I mean, they're, they're in, it's capital C. And not to get off on this, you know, but you know, all this arguing about should prayer be allowed. You know, you know how you know how Ben Franklin said they need to open Congress with prayer. I mean, it's just a funny, not to get off on that, I just feel like there's like this intentional ignorance that is like wafting through the airwaves. Be that as it may, there are very few things that carry the weight of being self-evident. Self-evident. What that means is it doesn't need something else to explain it. It holds its own water. It is, it is what you know a priori. What I mean by that is it's what you know before you know anything else. I have a book at home called What We Can't Not Know. There are certain things that we can't not know. And the Bible talks about two of these things. One one thing that no human being can possibly not know is that God is. He he has showed it through his creation and he has manifest the truth of it in us. Like we know God is. Now I'm not saying all people have a saving knowledge of God. They just have a knowledge of God. Matter of fact, Paul says they know it and then they push it down. They know it and they push it down. Second, that the words of Scripture are true. 
that when, when somebody got up here, whether it was Aaron or me, and said, hear now the word of God, and started reading the word of God, somewhere inside of you, you know it's true. Now, when I, when I say, thus far the reading of God's word, and I start talking, you might not have the same confidence. Right? That's, that's when you test all things and hold to what is true. But how do you determine what is true? Well, you determine what is true by the word of God. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John chapter 17. Jesus taught in John that his words are sufficient to judge us on the last day. His words. And it's quite an authoritative statement. All this to say that when Gabriel answers Zacharias with the words that he is Gabriel, who, quote, stands in the presence of God and was sent to you, that is the meatiest meal anyone can put on the plate in terms of a credible statement. Anything else, Zacharias could begin to question. Well, how do I know this? How do I know that? You bring your evidence, I'll bring my evidence. Let's put it on the table. See who's outweighs the other. And that goes on ad infinitum. On and on and on. But Gabriel, when he says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and God sent me here to tell you this, that is self-evidently true. Zacharias, like many of us, might find it easy to believe in God. Sometimes it's more difficult to believe God. Man, I'm going to, to be frank with you, I find it very easy to believe in God. And, and it's not because I have maybe great faith, it's because I have so little faith in everything else. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is when everybody leaves Jesus and Jesus looks at the, the apostles, you know. And he goes, do you want to leave too? And Peter's like, where would we go? Like, I feel that way all the time. Like, if, if I have flickering faith and I look around, there's nowhere to go. And I think one of the only reasons I have that in me is because of the grace of God itself. But I don't always find it easy to believe God. That's a struggle. Now, before we get into the aftermath of Zacharias's doubt, I have to say, I think it's pretty marvelous to note that it was Gabriel, that same angel who, about 500 years earlier, gave Daniel the, quote, insight and understanding of the visions that he encountered. So he's, you know, we read about him in Daniel, and then, you know, 500 years later, he's here. And what I think is marvelous about it is, is that Gabriel is the one, and we, don't get, we can't get into the, the weeds on this, he's the one who gave this idea of the 70 weeks. Now, those of you who are into end times and eschatology know that the 70 weeks is kind of a big deal, and it's a much debated passage. I'm under the conviction that that, seven, that 70 weeks was 70 weeks of years, and it went from the time of Daniel to the birth of Christ the 490-year period, and it is all fulfilled in Christ. That prophecy in the Old Testament is all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. So I think, as I was reading this, I'm like, he was there 500 years earlier, gave the prophecy, and now he's here in the room saying the prophecy is about to be fulfilled. 
But behold, we read on, verse 20, getting back to the issue, you will be mute and not able to speak until the days, till the day these things take place because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Friends, what we have to understand is unbelief is not a morally neutral position. In our unbelief, we are in active denial of something we know to be true. Now, now I understand we play psychological games with ourselves. Dr. Bonson did his doctoral dissertation on self-deception. That, you know, when, you, when you're talking with an atheist and they're saying, I don't believe in God, and I'm like, I think you do. I think you know God is. And they're like, no, I don't. I think that you can get to the point in your own psychology where you actually believe the lie. But I also think that somewhere in there, the truth is still flickering. I don't think you can put it out entirely. That's why you don't want to play games with them. You don't want to answer the fool according to their folly, lest you be like them, it says. What you want to do is continually talk truth, continually talk sanity. If you're talking to a crazy person, you don't talk crazy talk. You talk sane talk and hope that somehow the light goes on by the grace of God. But we need to recognize that... Now, keep this in mind. I even said a minute ago. You're called to question me, right? We have a question and answer time, and I, I welcome that. I, 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 I'm not saying this, you know, tongue-in-cheek or wink-wink. I, like I like it when somebody opens their Bible and says, you know, Pastor Paul, I really don't think you got this right, you know? And, all right, let's have a discussion, because if you do that and you're right and I'm wrong, I'm called to repent, you know what? And everybody who listens to me benefits, because I've been corrected. I think it's fine to doubt certain things, doubt teachers. You know, as we walk around, I think there's a, a, help, a healthy skepticism that we should have as we look around this little narrow globe. But when Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, when it's the word of God, and you say no, you are saying no to something that is absolutely true, and it is self-evidently true, and we're saying no. And friends, that's rebellion. The author of Hebrews put it this way, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, I'm not suggesting it's easy. We have a man who's the center at this point of this narrative who's given beaming accolades in Scripture. Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible talked about you and said, you know, Frank, a man who's righteous and blameless. You know, I'm like, all right, as opposed to like Judas, right? You're like, oh, wow, that's kind of lame, you know? You record that. But we have in this story a person who's given these wonderful accolades but his faithfulness comes to a screeching halt when he hears something that seems so extreme. He's like, what? Clearly, you've got the wrong guy. And there were consequences 
for his unbelief. I mean, this is where, if you just start reading the story, you're going, wait a minute, you're going to be mute? Because you said, what? Now, again, there's a great deal of speculation. And I mention speculation because there are certain things in the Bible I think are clear and certain things that are not clear. I don't think it's entirely clear why he's made mute. Some say that he was made mute because he didn't believe with his ears. Therefore, God made him deaf. By the way, he probably wasn't able to speak or speak or hear. Because verse 62, they're speaking to him in sign language, you know, or some form of sign language. So he can't speak and he can't hear. And people are going, well, he can't speak because God is now not going to allow him to speak the good news. Or he can't speak because when he used his mouth, when he heard the good news, the mouth was full of doubt. Or he can't hear because when he heard it, he doubted it and so forth. All those things, to be honest with you, seemed a bit fanciful to me. I'm like, okay, it could be any one of those things. I don't know which. But I do know this. He was made mute. Not going to be able to talk. The consequences for a believer having a hard time believing. And I'm guessing everyone in this room falls into that category at some level. But know this, there are consequences. Unbelief is a sin, and there are consequences for that sin. But the consequences for a believer who's having a hard time believing is entirely different than the consequences for an unbeliever who's hardened in their unbelief. You understand the difference there? What Zacharias would experience for the next nine or ten months was a discipline. He was being disciplined by God, but it was a loving and fatherly discipline. And let me just read the passage, and I won't really comment on it, but I think it says it so well in Hebrews, writing to people who are going through difficult times, writing to Christians who are going through difficult times. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for our discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Right? You get his point. The point is, a loving parent doesn't just let their kids do whatever they want to do. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. You hear that, kids? It's an assumption that you're respecting your parents when they discipline. (laughs) 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now here's some really true words that are spoken. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. (laughs) Ain't it the truth? But later it yields one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Nine or ten months of deaf and dumb was going to produce something in Zacharias. I'm not sure, perhaps, I mean, I think to myself, if I couldn't speak and I couldn't hear, like I just took a sabbatical, right? So you're stepping away from teaching, you're stepping away from a lot of stuff. Boy, this was quite a sabbatical for Zacharias, right? You can't hear and you can't talk. He's a godly person. I'm guessing there was a time of great, deep reflection in his life. I don't think, and again, this is just me speculating, but I don't think it would be a far-fetched conclusion to draw that conclusion that if somebody asked Zacharias, say many years later, what period in his life was the most sanctifying period, that he would answer those 10 months of silence. I don't know for sure. But I know know people who've gone through crucibles, things that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. And they've gone through and come out the other end. And they will tell me that God had formed in them and taught them and constructed in them something that had never happened before because oftentimes true sanctification hurts. It's painful. Growth, count on it, can be painful. For the Christian, for the believer, all the trials, pains, and difficulty have as their chief end a growth that leads to the glory of God. You can know that as you're sitting there in the ashes. I do pray that we would all desire to obtain that which is expressed by those words, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I had to take a minute and kind of go, what does that mean, the peaceful fruit of righteousness? And as I, as I was studying it, and then I came upon John Calvin's definition, and I thought I can't really say it better, and it ministered to me, and hopefully this quote will minister to you. Calvin said, and by the fruit of righteousness, he means the fear of the Lord and a godly and holy life of which the cross is the teacher He calls it peaceable because in adversities we are alarmed and disquieted, being tempted by impatience, which is always noisy and and restless, but being chastened, we acknowledge with a resigned mind how profitable did that become to us, which before seemed bitter and grievous. We've been, you know, the word in Hebrew is we've been trained by it. I mean, I can't... as a sports guy, help but think of a difficult workout that you've been trained by. And you come out the other end 
just a little more excellent than you went in. How that should not cause us to have bitter, a bitter disposition toward the difficulties we encounter. For the believer struggling with unbelief, they have a father who is at work in us. When you're having a hard time believing it, we have a father who's going, well, I'm going to help take care of that. And sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it is to the bolstering of our faith. He wants us, he wants us to believe that he's going to feed us. He wants us to believe that he's going to deliver us from dangers, that he's going to vindicate our reputations, that he's going to protect our lives. He wants us to believe that when the day happens that he determines, he will bring us to himself escorted by the angels. He wants us to know that he's in charge of our lives. And nobody loves us the way he loves us. I love Psalm 139. He says, he scrutinizes my path. When my kids were little, we'd walk around the block. And you're walking little ones around the block. You're looking for dogs, right? You're looking for cars. You're like going, I'm going to make sure nothing hurts my children. And that's the way God is with us. He's looking at where we're walking. He's looking at all the things and the things that are difficult the things that we might even view as something we'd like to avoid, he's going, no, I'm going to use this for your growth. I'm going to use this to strengthen your faith. Our Father would have us, I think, with Paul, utter the words, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I don't know about you. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night You ever wake up in the middle of the night and things start going through your head? Young people, that's going to be your future. (laughs) That happens to me all the time. And I'm trying not to think about things because you start going down that road, right? And all of a sudden it's 1.30, then it's like 4.30, and you still don't have it resolved. And you wonder if it's going to get resolved, right? You're sitting there and you're like going, there's so many things on the plate, so many difficulties. It's stressing me out, man. And I wonder if it's all going to work out. Perhaps we all have our Zacharias moments, right? We're, We're sitting there going, wait a minute. This seems unresolvable. I don't think this is going to work out. We're doubt, we're doubting the wonderfully good news that Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Even since I wrote this sermon, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I'm like going, I like that verse. You know, I'm struggling with it, right? But God's going, I will supply all your needs. Just go to sleep. This is sleep time. But friends, I think it needs to be said that those who are hardened in their unbelief, the consequences of catering to that rebellion are quite different than it is for the believer. As this passage informs us, God's faithfulness will not be held at bay because Zacharias doubted. That's what it's, you know, 
He doubts it. And then when you start reading, the angel's like going to go, it's going to happen. My doubt isn't going to stop God from doing what God's going to do. My faithlessness does not make God faithless. The things of which Gabriel spoke will all take place. Now, all the people waited outside and they witnessed Zacharias' inability to speak. That was going to happen. They could tell that he had seen a vision. Elizabeth would conceive and for reasons, again, not disclosed, hide herself while rejoicing. God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness can be a source of joy and peace. But I don't know if there are any unbelievers in the room. I don't know if there's any unbelievers driving down the freeway right now when this goes on the radio. But the faithfulness of God can also be a source of fear. Paul writing what was probably his last letter to his young protege in the faith, Timothy wrote this in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the unbeliever needs to tremble at the faithfulness of God. If a good, saved man was struck dumb, what would become of you if you have no faith at all? If the very belief that God has given you, you just keep pushing it down and pushing it down, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. Well, I'll tell you what the Bible says, a destroying angel, not a Gabriel, will be your fearful visitor. And he will not say, fear not. Those words will not come out of that destroying angel's mouth. You know, in that little encounter that I watched with Ricky Gervais, you know, he said, oh, I understand it, I understand. Bad people go to hell, you know. And it's kind of like a lot of atheist friends of mine, they're like, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. Okay, if I were to publicly criticize something, I'd do a little homework. At least, at least understand what you're criticizing because that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that everybody is deserving of hell. All of us. Unbelief will destroy the best of us. But belief will save the worst of us. I think our confession says it very nicely in the Westminster Confession, chapter 15, paragraph 4, where it reads, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, thanking you that you do not leave us in that position of doubt and weakness, but you ever are at work within us, sanctifying us. And we do thank you, Father, that our peace with you is not dependent upon the size of our faith, but the God in whom we have faith, be it ever so weak. We do pray, Father, though, that you would continue to help us have that peace that accompanies the knowledge that we have a Father in heaven 
who has rescued us from sin and death. And may we ever walk in a manner consistent with that calling, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.